Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School. We are the region's leading graduate policy school and you can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to be joined today by my co-host, Bob Conn. Hello, Bob. How are you? Good afternoon, Martin. Great to be with you again. Uh, it's fabulous to have you here. Bob is a visiting fellow here at Crawford School and he's had an extensive career as an Australian diplomat in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, at the start of each podcast, regular listeners will know we have a look back over the last week and pick out a couple of key policy issues that have been playing out in the media. So, Bob, what has caught your eye in the wide world of policy over the last week? Well, Martin, the thing that really staggered me yesterday was the news of the recent UN report on the threat to plant and animal species. Uh, Over one million of them looking ahead are threatened with extinction. Staggered me, including the Australian koala. It also noted that the urban areas have doubled globally since 1992, makes it even harder to protect our green spaces, and particularly for Australians in the Great Barrier Reef. We've lost half the world's coral already, and we're going to lose the rest unless we can keep climate change below two degrees Celsius. Yeah, that report was full of dire warnings about the state of the world's biodiversity. Yet here we are in the middle of an Australian election campaign. I feel like the environment and climate change has barely been touched on by the political parties. What's it actually going to take for these messages to cut through and be turned into, you know, political commitments? I don't know, Martin, because certainly I think a lot of us out here hearing the election campaign and the run-up to it before the budget are getting pretty tired of some of the messages we're getting. I think Labor, to be fair, has tried hard to enunciate an environmental and climate change policy. I have to say, personally, I don't think the government has one. And indeed, the Labor Party has rather borrowed the government's old uh, national energy guarantee. But for most people, I think climate change and active and positive steps to deal with it have become a very key issue in this election for most voters. Yeah, indeed, Bob. Really uh, a very important issue for voters. Let's hope it starts being reflected in some policy soon enough. I think that's right, Martin. And also we need to remember they've got a lot more younger voters coming onto the electoral roll than since last time. And I think for them, this is one of the key issues and they'll want to have their voice. Thanks for that, Bob. Now, one thing you might not know, listener, is that when we record this podcast here in this tiny cupboard here at Crawford School, um, we all enjoy a nice cup of tea. We're quite the tea connoisseurs. Personally, right now, I am drinking a delicious peppermint tea made by Tea Peaks. Uh, other companies are available. Um, Bob, what are you uh, supping at the moment? I'm drinking a delicious uh, peppermint tea, thank you, Martin, which is going down just fine. 
<laughs> but you're drinking it from quite a special mug, aren't you? Tell us about it. Well, it is indeed a special mug and the first time I've seen this special mug. Uh, for the listener, basically it's orange on the inside, white on the outside. In bold type on the side, it says Policy Forum Pod. It's a Policy Forum Pod mug. And what else does it say, Bob? What it says, Martin, is got 99 policy problems, but a brew ain't one. <laughs> a brew ain't one. Yeah, so we had these mugs made up for the launch of the Crawford School Strategic Plan, which happened last week. And they are uh, super exclusive. We only had a very few of them made up. So I'm glad that you've got one, Bob. You are a worthy recipient of the Policy Forum Pod mug. Well, thank you very much, Martin. I think it's going to become a collector's item for all those policy wonks out there beyond the ANU and within the ANU. And quickly, congratulations on the launch of the strategic plan for the Crawford School last Thursday night. Entertaining night, showed a lot of capacity and diversity and exciting work done here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun as well. So th these mugs are, I said, they're, they're very exclusive. They're very hard to get your hands on. But one way to get your hands on one of these mugs is make a suggestion for a topic that you would like to see covered on our podcast. And if we go ahead and make that, uh, make that podcast, we will give you one of our exclusive Policy Forum pod mugs. And I'm sure it will take pride of place on your desk or in your kitchen or wherever you choose to use it. Maybe you want to take it with you wherever you go. And in fact, this week's pod is exactly one of those things. This week's pod, we are tackling an issue which was suggested to us by one of the members of our Facebook podcast group. Uh, it was Elna Ashton. So, Elna, thank you for your excellent suggestion. I'm going to talk about what we're going to be covering in a second. But, Elna, do get in contact with us so we can get your mug to you. And, listeners, if you would like to get your hands on one of our exclusive Policy Forum pod mugs, and why wouldn't you? The best way to do that is to jump on the Facebook pod group. We are Policy Forum pod on Facebook. Just type that into your search bar, hit join, and let us know your suggestions for issues and topics that you would like to see covered on this podcast. We always love hearing from you. If you want to get in contact with us in other ways, well, the way to do it on Twitter is Apps Policy Forum, APPS Policy Forum, or you can just shoot us through an email where we are podcast at policyforum.net. And congratulations again to Eleanor. Now, normally on this podcast, we drill down into specific policy issues and we take up a sort of multidisciplinary approach to this drawing in experts from a range of disciplines. But this time around, we are going to do something a little different. We're going to take a look at a policy tool, a policy mechanism really, which is effective policy communication. Now, that is an essential part of the policy making process, but it's one that often comes as something of an afterthought or doesn't quite turn out in the way that people might hope it would. So this time around, we want to take a look at some of the best and worst examples of policy communication and hopefully draw out some lessons on how to communicate policy more successfully. As I said, this was the topic that was suggested by Eleanor Ashton in our Facebook podcast group. And we've got an amazing lineup of guests to tackle this topic, haven't we, Bob? We have indeed, Martin. Would you like me to go ahead and introduce them? Oh, please do. I think that would be an example of effective policy communication. Okay. My pleasure to introduce Fiona Benson. 
Fiona is founder of FJ Partner Strategic Advisory, a former press secretary to two federal cabinet ministers, and she specialises in devising innovative stakeholder engagement, media and communication strategies. Then we have Professor Frank Bongiorno, Professor of the ANU School of History. He specialises in Australian labour, political and cultural studies, and has served on the New South Wales Arts Advisory Council and as a member of the New South Wales Ministry of the Arts, Literature and History Committee. I know from personal experience that Frank has a wide influence, not only in the School of History, but beyond. Happy to also welcome Dr. Andrew Hughes. Andrew is lecturer at the ANU Research School of Management, one of the leading researchers in political marketing in Australia, and has given numerous interviews on politics and political marketing to international and national television, print and internet outlets. And last, but no means least, is Dr. Pamela Kinnear. She's a principal of Kinford Consulting, and she looks back at a 20-year career at senior leadership levels across government, non-government, and the research sectors. Yeah, so we've got a really great range of expertise around the table. And as a communications professional myself, um, 20 years I've been working in the communication space, and I still find there's a certain amount of alchemy that goes on into making effective communications. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing what our panellists have got to say about how things can go right and why things go wrong. So we'll get to that in a second, but before we do, a reminder to our listeners to please get in contact with us. We love hearing from you. Whatever comments or thoughts or suggestions or questions you've got around the stuff that we do, you can find us on Facebook as Policy Forum Pod. We're on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum or shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And please do stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your suggestions and some of your comments. But for now, let's meet our panel. Well, welcome back, listeners, and let me welcome our panel guest today. Fiona, welcome to you. Great to have you. Thanks very much, Bob. Good to be here. And Pamela, same to you. Great to have you with us. Thanks very much, Bob. Okay. And Frank, how goes it? Very well. Thanks, Bob. That's good. And of course, Andrew, welcome. Bob, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start right in on this issue of um, policy and communication. Uh, I think in our minds, we're thinking about just how do they interact? And I think we're thinking, are we talking about public servants here? Are we talking about politicians? We're talking about academics. I think in our minds, we were thinking what we're seeing in front of us right now in the, in the political space. That is, how does policy get into the political process and what happens to it then? But you may have a different take on that, but that's where we're sort of starting from. Let me give you a bit of context. During the 1972 election, its time was a successful campaign under Labor's Gough Whitlam. It built on the mistakes made by then Prime Minister Bill McMahon in the areas of national economy, health care, city planning and the Vietnam War and eventually saw Labor win the election. Frank, what do you think the difference is between political and policy communication? Well, policy, I guess, often implies a level of complexity um, that really demands uh, a very high level of skill, I think. So I guess one of the the, um, things that was often said about Paul Keating is that he was remarkably able to 
I guess, reduce quite complex economic processes that would normally lead most of us to, to sort of glaze over to relatively simple images and, and catchy phrases that um, were appreciated, I think, by both ordinary electors and, you know, the, the press gallery and public servants. So I think that's that's policy communication. Political communication is, as you say, um, it's more about vision, perhaps. It's the ability to, to pack it or to create a package from a range of different kinds of, of policies and to actually present them in a way that's coherent and often via a particular slogan, which, as we know, are usually invented by advertising companies, but the politicians and the political apparatus has to have the skill to, to, to actually be able to, to sort out the good from the bad. Okay, so just a quick example from those times. Where do you think John Hewson went wrong? These days, John Hewson's prepared to say that what he did with the fight back was the largest political suicide note in Australia's history. And I've heard him say that. Any thoughts on this? Yeah. So um, the idea of fight back, you know, the slogan fight back was was um, uh, very effective initially, if you recall. Yep. It helped to finish off the prime ministership of Bob Hawke. But it was eventually, in fact, very quickly overwhelmed by ambiguities about detail. And and that was the, the, the problem there, that, that uh, the, you know, the inability, I suppose, to get uh, relatively straightforward explanations of that detail across to electors, most famously in the the interview of Bob Willisy over that uh, that that blasted cake, you know. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> That's right. All right, let's try and get some good examples of policy and communication. Again, I'll start with you, Frank, and then we'll go around and ask the rest of you what your examples are, really good examples of policy was well communicated. Well, I mean, I think one of the, the most extraordinary pieces of, of cut through, if you like, in my lifetime was was John Howard in 2001. You know, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Uh, you know, it exuded clarity and strength. It's clear that different types of voters heard different things um, when, when, when John Howard said that, and it really did leave the opposition floundering. They didn't have a comeback for that, and unsurprisingly, it virtually became the campaign slogan. So whether you like the particular policy that it Im- embodied or not, there's no doubt that there's a piece of political communication that was strikingly effective. Would you say that was a piece of new policy? Uh, no, it's in fact one of the oldest policies imaginable because it was basically saying that uh, governments control their own borders and decide who comes in via an immigration or refugee policy, particularly immigration policy, and who doesn't. So it's a completely conventional idea, but every, tone and context were everything. Fiona, what, what would you like to nominate as an example where you think a policy was communicated well and why it was successful, if it was? Well, I think time will tell. I'm going to pick an example from this campaign. So we'll know uh, come 18 May whether you know, how successful it was. I probably look at um, you know this campaign. I think Labor's been very strong in terms of big policy announcements. They um, they kicked off with a big one around childcare and pension and dental, and that was all about making sure senior Australians didn't have to miss out on going to the dentist, that they could go and have their teeth seen to. And the childcare was obviously just increasing um, the amount of subsidies that working people get for, for having their children in childcare. And the reason I think this was successful, it's completely different, I guess, in a sense, to 
to the example Frank gave because this was successful tactically. It was an announcement on a Sunday night, the day before pre-poll opened. This campaign, we've seen more than a doubling in the number of voters who voted during pre-poll. So this was Labor saying, right, what are the big spending messages that people are going to personally relate to? It spoke to their voting base and it was done with a a really clear view to timing, to winning the TV's on Sunday night, to having the papers, to seeing that coverage continue into the Monday. Pamela, example from you? So my example is probably slightly less about an actual policy and more about um, a, a time when a major politician at a very serious crisis point is tried to set the tone and the background and the framework for some major policies that she was going to have to do. And what I'm referring to is the very first interview that Julia Gillard did as PM. The very the night she became PM, she did an interview with Kerry O'Brien. And I don't think I am alone in being a person watching that interview that said, finally, a person who can actually speak and answer actual questions. And what was so impressive about what she did that night was that Kerry was trying very hard to do gotcha journalism. And she refused it. She simply said, I don't accept the premise of your question, Kerry. But if what you're trying to get to, if the underlying issue you're trying to get to is this, then I'm happy to have a go at answering that. Or if she wasn't happy to have a go at answering it, she said, I've only been Prime Minister three hours. Um, this is going to be a really important issue for me to get right and I'll be talking to my collaborator, you know, my stakeholders and getting people's views on it. And she took control of the situation and the interview in a way that gave her room that allowed her to come across professionally and that didn't and that was entirely respectful of Kerry's role as a journalist to ask questions on behalf of the Australian public. And unfortunately, I think that was the first and last time we saw her give an interview with that level of authenticity because it was very quickly after that that obviously I think the spin doctors got to her and uh, we never saw that level of authenticity and that um, agency again in a debate. And my, I think that if we had, we might have had a better start to her prime ministership. So how would you see that kind of quality playing out in the current election campaign? Anyone else you can identify that has that clarity in talking to the issues? Well, it's interesting because we know from some of the survey data, the recent survey data on trust, that um, people are increasingly actually wanting to see that level of authenticity. They're actually increasingly not wanting to see rehearsed speeches. They increasingly want to see spontaneity and authenticity. And um, I think even today we've just been thrown an example um, of Bill Shorten finally actually cracking the wooden facade and getting personal about something and, and talking really personally um, about the issue about, um, you know, his mother and, and how that went. And I think my, my guess is that the more we see that level of authenticity and the taking back of the, um, the uh, journalism, um, we might actually have a chance of actually knowing who our politicians are. Thank you. Andrew. What's your take? Um, I'll go for two examples here, one for policy, one for politics. So policy first, um, a really good campaign, which sticks in my head a lot, is the set-top box campaign. Um, it seems very basic, but if you think about the set-top box um, issue itself, we moved from um, old TV 
signaling to the new one we now all take for granted, HD and SD and all that type of thing, it affected everyone. You have to get it right. You get a policy like that wrong, um, people start realizing the government's not working. And it should be something very, very simple. But that said, um, it was something if they didn't get it right, it could actually reflect very badly on the government. They got it right in a big way. I mean, it worked very, very well. Um, the way it was designed, the communication, the all the way from the minister, all the way down to the street level, you might say, was done really well. So policy, that was perfect. That's a textbook play. That's what you want to look at in the future. Uh, political communication, I think to me the important part there is to start momentum. You need to start momentum to get someone behind you, to get you um, engagement, to get experience of the brand, so to speak. And um, for political communication, you can go back to the Franklin Dams movement by the Greens. That was a great campaign. Um, it, it went from, you know, the, the era it was in, Fraser was coming off a high at the time, but at the same time, the Greens issue wasn't that front and centre like it is now. Climate change was not even an issue we talked about back then. Um, hey, I was just a kid, so I had no idea myself. But moving on in time, looking at how they start, started momentum, that was a good example. The other one was Kevin Rudd, post-GFC. Wow, that was good. Because we, we've now found out since then that the head of APRA was ringing his wife up to get her to go down to an ATM and get as much cash out as possible. That's how bad things were looking. Kevin Rudd comes out, cool as a cucumber, perfect man for the moment, communicates the response by the government to that issue where we all then can relax and none of us go into recession. Australia was one of the few nations which avoided recession. Was it a perfect policy? No. Was it perfect communication? Yes. Uh, the policy itself? Yeah, there's a few flaws to it and I think people have discussed that since then. But at the time, what they needed was a quick response, a clear response, and a response the rest of the nation had hoping that government was again governing. And it's a good example of how to do that. Yes, you've reminded me that Ken Henry's mum rang him about that same time and said, do I take my money out of the bank, Ken? He said, no, mum, it's going to be okay. And off with, on with the policy that you're describing. Yeah. Let's move along to some bad examples of um, policy communication and the other side of the court, where policy communication, maybe the policy was good, but the communication went badly wrong. So let's start with Pamela. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to select um, my health record for this one. Um, it's a policy that at one level, most people can have a gut level agreement to. It seems at one level quite sensible. But in my view, the my health record communication got it very wrong. They fell into a very, very common trap which governments have an unfortunate tendency towards, which is to focus on telling people stuff, explaining the facts, promoting the benefits, reassuring that any risks are under control and correcting myths and information. When in fact, when you've got an environment where public trust is fairly low, especially in data-related issues, they had, hadn't understood that zeitgeist. Um, and actually under those circumstances, what they should have been doing is actually genuinely listening to and acknowledging concerns that people had, whether they believed them or not, they needed to spend time listening. They needed to actually be proactive and transparent about the many challenges that this quite complex um, project actually faced. They needed to share those challenges and dilemmas with people who could have actually come in to say, yeah, I can see that that's a dilemma. I can see you're doing your best. They needed to invite collaborative problem solving. They needed to take a stance of equality with their critics. Instead, they took a stance of expert disengagement from their critics or dismissal. 
Um, so I think, um, you know, they, they really chose the wrong strategy there. And I think it backfired terribly for them because it didn't take long before their critics were actually finding real and serious problems with the policy that even if they had paid attention to, they didn't look like they had in the past. And before we knew it, they were having to sort of wave the white flag, uh, take the deadlines uh, out, yep. put legislation in place. And even then, they didn't fully apologise or admit that they might not have got it quite right. And I think that a potentially important policy um, has probably gone down the gurgler. Anyone, anyone want to comment on that? Because I think that does stick in our minds and it was a policy that we were all could be involved in as individuals, whether we were going to sign on to it or not. Yeah, no, it was a really good example of how not to do communication in the modern era um, because it involved the website and people's fear of a website is hacking. And the government never, ever countered that. They never, ever came out and said, hey, we'll control third-party access to this information. And then the story started to emerge already of person X who works at a very minor role in a hospital somewhere to access someone's records. And the consequence is more like person X had just been wrapped across the knuckles. We weren't hearing them being locked up, thrown away, you know, for 10 years or something. So all of us started to think, well, hang on, that's my personal, very confidential information. And anyone with a certain low level of access can look at my information. Well, hang on. And so the moment that fear creeps in, that's it for adoption. The moment yes. you have like adoption or risk factor with any communication um, in the mind of the person receiving that message, you can forget that message being effective. And the thing that I would going, say if I wow. can come in yeah, here, sure. Bob, is that um, many of those anxieties and fears at one level, you could, you could easily raise a rational argument yes. against. But the fact is that under those circumstances, rational arguments don't work. In fact, they backfire. When people are fearful and anxious about something and they're told by somebody who's being quite arrogant and dismissive of their concerns to settle down or calm down, we all know that doesn't go down very well. And that's basically what happened. And if they'd adopted a more conciliatory, more understanding, more acknowledging uh, tone of the, their real concerns perfectly understandable that people have these concerns and there are um, they are doing their best but they might not have it right. It had shades of the controversy in the 80s over the Australia card. Indeed, um, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. All yeah. of the so data stuff does. Data yeah. issues, yeah. Uh, new technologies, all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have three daughters in their 40s all married and I must say there was quite a bit of family argument just amongst ourselves as to who was going to do what. Anyway, Fiona, back to you. Let's, let's move on to another topic that you might have a particularly bad example example out there for us. Oh, so many to choose from. <laughs> yeah, we're not short of examples on the bad side. I know. This is, you know, is it cash for clunkers? Is it the Citizens Assembly? I um, Look, again, I think I'll, I'm going to stick with the current campaign and because I think it does go across the whole discussion in the sense of the way this is being framed um, and looking at the negative rather than the positive and because and, the politics influence how people perceive the policy, right? So on the one hand, we've got the bill you can't afford and on the other hand, we've got the coalition's cuts and every single policy announcement is being framed through those. So the, the my example of a good policy announcement by Labor is also the example of a bad because the other part of that policy announcement was this wage rise uh, for childcare workers should Labor be... Um, 
you know, elected. Again, on, on the very basic principles, who doesn't think childcare workers should get more money? Everyone does. But this um, this announcement did not go down well. It played straight into the coalition's attack line about, um, you know, big government, big spending. You know, it's your money that, that they're spending. Uh, and then it also, um, it meant that there were, they didn't, I think, align their interest groups well in advance of the announcement. So the first thing you had was aged care workers coming out saying, hey, where's my pay rise? Don't I need a pay rise too? So I think, you know, that that really failed very much uh, on the political front as well as on a a policy Thank you. Frank? Yeah, I mean, some of the – from the recent past, I mean, I think the most spectacular and damaging for any particular government that I can think of in recent years was the 2014 budget. I mean, it destroyed the uh, prime ministership, really, of of Tony Abbott. And indeed, we're in some ways, we're still dealing with the, the consequences of that that particular failure. The claims of budget emergency that you know weren't heard the other side of the election, but were suddenly presented as if they were utterly pressing, and were used to justify this incredibly broad range of of changes that were being quite rightly. Dis- Missed as many by so many people as unfair. Um, and that's uh, when we had the Commission of Audit. The from Commission memory, of Audit, which yeah, well, that was all of those things, uh, but after the election, is that yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. the Commission of Audit, I suppose, was well. The, the interpretation at the time is that it, it was going to lay out some really radical changes, and the government would, you know, sort of chime in with something a bit uh, more moderate. But it was hopeless, and it, it's also reminded too, I think, of the importance of visual imagery here too. I mean, we often think in terms of words, don't we? But by gosh, the um, uh, image of of uh, the treasurer dancing on on budget night, perfectly Smoking human. cigars. Well, there's a cigars. That was the <laughs> other one. But, you know, dan- mucking around with his kids, which a perfectly human and reasonable thing for a person to do at the end of a big job like a, a budget. But, you know, when you're delivering a, a, an austere budget like that and telling people they're going to have to suffer really bad visual imagery. And the cigar, as you point out, was kind of, uh, that was actually from before, I think, that the, the, the budget prepping, had been finalised. Yeah. But it, came, it was, it was, it was uh, publicised later. And again, you know, that, that taps into some really old images of luxury of, of you know, those, those old 19th century cartoons of a kind of plutocrat with a cigar sticking out of his mouth, you know, representing privilege. And, you know, you might think, oh gosh, surely we're over all that, but we're not actually. Those sorts of visual images are okay. incredibly damaging. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks, yeah. Andrew. Your um, take on this one before we move on yeah, to the next topic. I'll go for one which has um, played a significant role in the downfall of five Australian prime ministers, which is energy policy. Um, I have had not heard a prime minister in the last five convey to me in simplistic terms how energy policy will change my life or affect my life. Um, so we start off with Rudd, we go to Gillard, we go to Abbott, we go to Turnbull and now Morrison. And each and every time this issue has come back to haunt all of them because they just can't communicate it properly. And it's, you know, it's been a bugbear. I mean, here's climate change, the climate change election we're now having, and yet the government's energy policy is is stuck. 
because they can't communicate it properly. They can't communicate the value of why we need to have and stick with their policy over that of Labor's. And it may yet be a key reason why they lose this government. Okay. Let's try, let's now try and look ahead a bit and say we've heard examples of good policy and some bad ones. Uh, what have we learned, do you think, at this point? As a nation, as a policy process, as a political process, are we still learning? We haven't learned enough? Just what Andrew said, it doesn't sound like we have. I'll say, look, first off, off um, you go. yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Go for it, Andrew. Um, <laughs> um, go for the old communication um, acronym of, of KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, listen to that. If you stick to that, you'll be fine. And also think about your current market. Um, we're in the information era. People are flooded with information. If you're going to hit them with a rational school debating style logic of, hey, here's lots of words and here's lots of words on the screen, no one's going to pay any attention. YouTube tells us you have five seconds to keep and hold someone's attention. Five. You don't have 50 or 500 or 5,000. So politicians out there listening right now, keep that metric in your head. Five seconds. You can't convince me in five seconds. You've taken too long. That's interesting because it reminds me when I used to work for ministers and the rule was if you haven't convinced a minister on something within 30 seconds, then you've lost him or her. So the time's getting yeah. shorter. Yeah, it is. Okay. All right. Fee, what would you like to say on this one? Uh, look, I, I absolutely agree. And I think um, we've also got to, they've got to get better at social media. When <laughs> I was just laughing then because you made me think of uh, the energy minister and his little yeah. self-congratulatory fail. <laughs> You know, great move. Well done, Angus. Uh, and, you, you have know, to love yourself, Lee. Come on. It's, it's, it's okay to love yourself. So one of the lessons is switch accounts. Bottom switch yeah. Twitter accounts. But, you know, it's it's part of how sophisticated the media landscape is these days. But it's knowing the details. Get the detail right. Be able to say how much a climate change policy is going to cost. Be able to say how much it's going to cost um, the budget to give away tax breaks to the top end. Yeah. Details, trust, and absolutely keeping it simple. Pamela? Yeah, I think if I had to select one thing, it would be really to pay attention to the, it's a weird word, but the zeitgeist, the mood, the vibe, because, you know, the the old way of doing stuff isn't cutting it through with people anymore. People don't want to listen to experts so much anymore. People aren't interested in paternalistic governments doing stuff for us now. They want to hear real people saying real stuff that they can believe and they know, and they actually want to have less of the rehearsal stuff. And the other thing I'd say is do not assume everyone is an idiot or mistaken just because <laughs> they think it's different to you. Um, and Which, that, we I say, say this yeah. all the time. And that pulls, doesn't it, in the other direction from keeping it simple. It does. It's it, a real it, So simple but not yeah. too simple. Just because the message is simple doesn't mean you treat people simply. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. So, and it's, it's yeah. difficult to get authenticity across in five yeah. seconds or a 40-character yeah. tweet. But um, it's really easy to get inauthenticity across Very that quickly. way. <laughs> <laughs> Frank? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with all that's been said. The, on, the only thing I'd add there is it seems to me now uh, in, in the age of social media, internet, national mainstream media, of course, which in some ways is, is, is also relatively new, um, uh, you've got to get that message across to multiple audiences at once. So you can't tell people in Queensland one thing and then go and tell people in Victoria another thing 
the opposite sometimes and imagine that they're, they're not going to be talking to one another because we know they do talk to one another on the internet, on social media. Uh, it comes to that those sorts of contradictions are, are usually come together in national media. You, you sort of have to be able to deliver a message that makes sense, perhaps in different ways in different parts of Australia. But that rather requires the political part of the process to actually have a clear message among themselves, yeah. particularly on climate change and then in a position to communicate it. And you'd think the current government is sadly lacking in this place. Well, that comes back to values, doesn't it? I mean, the reluctance, I suspect, of a lot of our politicians to actually take a stand on values, to say, right, this is what we stand for and this is why we have these policies. And if, if, if you don't have that, if you don't have that kind of foundational basis, you do end up, um, you know, messaging in, in, in a range of incoherent ways across different segments of the electorate in, in a way that gets you into trouble. In the Interesting end. thought there. Yeah. Maybe you would like to comment on you, You're talking about values, values in the policymaking process, values in policy implementation. So what you're really saying is values have got to be part of the policy. They've got to somehow reflect a decent value, a human value, an Australian value. A political value is this? Yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, I, I think Labor has done a bit of that this election because they basically said, right, franking credits uh, will uh, damage some people's material interests. You'll have less in the bank. But our view is that the money is better spent here. And that's about values fundamentally. I mean, it's yes. about taxation, sure, or taxation concessions. But it's actually a party saying, right, this is what we think and this is why we're doing it. Now, that might or might not be good policy and it might or might not work, but it is about values. Okay. I think some of you may have touched on this already, but what are your top tips to those involved in the policymaking process on how to communicate policies more successfully? So there you are. Go for it. Fiona? Oh, <laughs> thanks, Bob. Look, I think, um, again, maybe just picking up on a point Frank made, what's going to be really interesting in this campaign too is not just the national um, press and the digital campaigning and all the rest of it, but local. How much, it, you know, and, and the coalition is actually running a very localised campaign with all of their announcements targeted around local hospitals, you know, local pieces of infrastructure, and so is the ALP. But, you know, the, the question is, <clears throat> and it's a demographic question as well, you know, with our ageing population, are we at a point where people believe more what they read in their local community newspaper versus um, millennials and what they see online? So it is covering all those bases because the requirements, are the gap is widening in the requirements of the different different demographics. But I think um, the other really key thing is, is, I touched on earlier, is have your stakeholders um, on board and ready to go and ready to come out there and back you because, again, that feeds into trust. It's one thing for a politician to come out and say something or even even an academic to make a case for a policy. But if you've got a whole broad range of other stakeholders coming in behind you and arguing the same case, it just adds so much weight, power and, and essentially trust to the argument you're trying to get up. Okay. What would you like to say on this one? Um, yeah, I was just thinking, going, wow, Fee, that was brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, you should work somewhere really important and get lots of money. Um, <laughs> Are you um, offering me a job? <laughs> uh, I work at ANU. We, we don't offer lots of money, just like lots of privilege and, privilege and, and respect. And, and respect. Exactly. And, and the ability to think and be a thought leader. You mean and time to think. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, Hey, it's a gift in this modern life to have this job. So, um, yeah, look, um, to touch on some of these points, yeah, you, you need to think about your market. Who, who's getting, who's the audience is for the message. Um, yeah, you can keep it simple, but at the same time, the medium is really important. Um, you know, there's this belief that social media is the, like the silver bullet of the modern age. It's not, 
Um, it's a belief that young people will just be on social media, media only. They aren't. They do other things as well. Um, they use other mediums of communication. Um, you know, podcasts are coming back. Look at us right now. And it, it shows the way we consume information might be changing, but inherently it's not all that different to what we saw 20, 30 years ago. We still have to have an effective way of communicating that message in words, in pictures, in visuals like Frank talked about before. Yeah, visuals are becoming very important. Part of what I do look at in research is the power of visuals and to convey information, to get a really quick emotional response at a level which is both primary and secondary in terms of you processing information. So yeah, using those different channels as they were to deliver the message is critical now because we're at a tipping point between heritage media like TV and radio and the digital age where we have websites, blogs, apps, you know, all the rest of it to convey information. You just can't rely upon one. You need to use different methods. Just as you're speaking, I'm reminded of the famous pink bats policy and implementation. How does that look to you in the terms of what you've just said? Well, you know, look at how people talk about it as a textbook of how not to do communication. I mean, they just stuffed it up all the way along. Um, Sorry, Peter Garrett, but you did get it wrong. And you are the minister and you should wear it and go back to doing music at times. So... (laughs) Um, I love I lo- look. I, hey, I went to many Midnight Oil concerts. I'm proud to say that. Yeah, great music. Um, and and look, he's he's a great muso. Have I said something like really weird out there? No, um, no. I, I he's a great muso. He is like Midnight Oil. Who doesn't get down and dirty with Midnight Oil? Um, you know the power and the passion. And and but at the same time. Thinking about the lessons he should have known as a musician, what made him successful in the music business should have translated and been across into his career as a politician on doing pink bats, which ended up costing Australians their lives. So, you know, to, to get that communication message right is so critical. It's not just about, hey, we get it wrong and a few people might be misunderstood. No, you get these messages wrong, you're affecting people's lives long term. Okay. I think I need to come to Frank and then back to Pamela. I but please comment on the pink bats thing as well. Yeah. Me personally, I think Peter Garrett might have been under very tight instructions. Sadly. Yeah, I, I think he was. No, yeah. But anyway. Sorry, Peter. Sorry, Peter. I'll take it back. Fiona, back to you. It was just a moment no, no, of madness. Oh, okay. Um, so I would say that um, the, the thing to remember is that many, many people have not made up their minds on complex policy issues and they're waiting to be persuaded one way or the other. And, you know, risk communication theory would tell you when you've got a group of people who are very much undecided and are waiting to be persuaded, then actually what you need to do is address the concerns first, not the benefits. And if you don't address the concerns first, then they will go searching for someone who can speak to their concerns. And then you'll have a much bigger group of people who hate your policy because you're listening to the critics. I'm with Fiona. Make sure you've got your stakeholders with you, but actually make sure that you've spoken to your harshest critics well. And if they have felt like they've been properly, properly heard, they're more likely to be able to live with the outcome after being properly heard than by being dismissed if you think, well, there's no point talking to them because they'll never change their minds. Other people who haven't yet made up their minds will be listening to them and they'll be watching how you're treating them. 
Well, Frank over to you. Are you tempted to try a political career now, having no, heard all this? N- not before and not now either. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I agree with that. I mean, particularly an op- opposition needs to place itself in a position of being able to govern after an election. I mean, this is what we've seen on a number of occasions in recent years where oppositions have been very successful in tearing down a government, but you also need to, to ensure that, that you have things in place, the stakeholders, those who are your harshest critics, so that when the time comes for you to govern, uh, you, you can actually manage uh, opposition, that you can manage uh, uh, the expectations of your supporters. And, and, and what we've seen in recent years is an inability or reluctance to do that. Any last minute thoughts on this before we wrap it up this afternoon? So looking around the four of you quickly, last well, word. We're here, we're here to help. Just contact <laughs> us. I was just going to say, because yeah, we've got um, all these amazing people here, uh, the thing that we haven't spoken about is Clive Palmer. We haven't spoken about the rise of the independents. So I thought maybe even just a, a quick – I, I would it. be really interested to hear what um, everyone else has to say on that because that's really changing in a powerful way the outcome and what the parliament looks like. Okay. How would you like to jump at this, Andrew? Um, yeah, Clive Palmer, um, he, he's really set a new precedent in Australian politics because of the amount of money he spent. But not just that, how he spent the money. Um, he's done a textbook campaign as you were if you're a marketer. That's the thing. Not as a politician, but as a marketer. And um, he started six months ago. If anything, it's a real new way of communicating because so often in, in Australian politics, we have the shadow campaign, as it's called, where it starts before the official campaign does. Clive went, you know what? Stuff that. Campaign's on now. We start here. And he ran with an app. He started to do things which got people talking about the brand. Yeah, you know what? Not everyone likes Clive Palmer. 95% of people will not vote for Clive Palmer. We know that from current opinion polls. But he's got 5% of people who have. That 5% got him influence. Influence gets you power. Power to influence in policy issues. For his $35 million he's so far spent since September last year, he has been incredibly effective. I'll give it to Clive Palmer right now. Really effective campaign. He's influenced policy. He's probably sitting back right now in his office somewhere in Brisbane going, boxes ticked, yes. Yeah. Job done, absolutely. So, um, so we're not seeing much policy here. We're talking about power. Yeah. And we're talking about propaganda, yeah. really, in yeah. a sense. And, well, you know what? It's not. It's, it's engaging not? people. I wouldn't say it's propaganda necessarily. That's the whole point. He's talking aspirational. How is that different to Labor talking about the aspiration without mentioning details? Okay. To Fiona. me. Well, perhaps I'd say something on independence. I mean, I think independence often rely very heavily on their ability to manage local networks and, and local media, in fact. Um, so I think that's been a big issue, particularly for country independence. One thinks there of Cathy McGowan in, in Indi in the past, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now that she's departing the scene. Um, but I think, you know, some of the independents have also been incredibly successful in creating a, a, a wider buzz, haven't they? Via, often via social media. And I think here of obviously Carly Stegall in... in uh, um, Warringah. Um, and, and of course, Karen Phelps did it very successfully in Wentworth too. So the local, um, I think, matters a lot with the independents, but they're also tapping into a broader set of concerns in those particular cases with the Liberal Party. But more generally, the independents, I think, appeal to dissatisfaction with the major parties. I mean, that's their thing. And uh, the reason why we're seeing so many more of them in the last 20 years is because of that rising sense of dissatisfaction with the mainstream parties. Thank you very much. Yeah, Any and and number? obviously that is not just here, it's global. You know, it's part of that sort of populist fed-upness, 
with um, the way that traditional paternalistic government systems have been working and haven't been working for people. And every survey you ever see on this these days, there's an increasing group of people who are saying, the system doesn't work for me and I'm not actually interested in listening to people who are reasonable and rational and dispassionate and non-emotional. The things that cut through to me are the people who are actually just saying it how it is. Um, and you know, people are looking to other people who are kind of, quote, like me instead of people who are not like me. We're, we're much more seeing that now. And, uh, you know, that's why we're getting these sorts of independence, uh, the success of those alongside the sort of those challenges that the mainstream parties are having to be reasonable and rational. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much for being here this afternoon. Fiona? Pamela, Frank and Andrew, it's been very entertaining and also very insightful. Let's see how it all looks in about two weeks' time when we've got some election results in. Listeners, don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast where we'll go over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hear from Mark Kenny about his Democracy Sausage podcast. Can you hear it? That's the sizzle of an Australian election heating up. And as both major parties cook up a recipe to win the vote, make sure you're across all the best analysis and insight with Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. Each week I'll be chatting with experts about the election week that was and what might be on the menu next. We'll chew the fat over the biggest announcements and developments and dive deeper than the headlines. So join me, Mark Kenny, each Monday for Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net forward slash podcasts. Well, welcome back. I am back again and here with Bob. Uh, thank you to all of our guests today. That was a fascinating discussion. It was one that I personally learned a lot from. What about you, Bob? What did you take out of that? Oh, look, absolutely. Some very fine comments and ideas and experiences there, uh, particularly struck by Frank's introducing values into the policy process and making that much more explicit than I'd been thinking about before. And of course, the theme from almost all of them, but particularly Pamela, was the need for authenticity in what you're doing in the policy space and how people instinctively respond to that and the very good example she gave of the My Health Record and how really how badly that was handled in the implementation of it. It's still pretty messy. Yeah, there were loads of great examples there, weren't there? Both of positive really and yes. really terrible outcomes. Yes. And terrible outcomes despite the fact that the policies themselves may have been quite good or may have been uh, quite well-intentioned. Yes, and our colleagues did give quite a few examples of re really good policy, but as we often know, getting good policy accepted in the public domain and getting it through the political process is a hard task, as we were discussing with the pink bats um, process which in its concept was very good and quite an emergency measure, but the implementation and the explanation of it was really uh, not well handled. Bob, you've been around politics and policy for many years. You must have a few good yarns of uh, policy communications. Uh, yes, Martin. I have a lot of stories. My father was involved in politics for a long time and I grew up watching it fairly closely. But as we get close to our election, I think there's one I'd particularly like to tell you. My father happened to be a Liberal Minister for the Gordon McMahon Governments of Civil Aviation. He had a very long experience in elections and election campaigns 
and he used to say to me, never underestimate the common sense of the ordinary Australian voter, have a very good sense of who's fit to run the country at any one time. They don't have much time, honestly, to get involved in the details of policy, but they do care about whether or not the government is looking after their interests properly. So when they go and vote, and some don't much like being forced to vote, but they go and do it. And when they do, my father used to say this, when they go, what they're thinking to themselves is now. Who is the least worst mob of bastards we could put in place for the next three years to run the country? I used to laugh at this. Anyhow, the old man went out of office with McMahon in 1972. I rang him and said, well, what do you think about the common sense of the ordinary state of voter now? And he said something like, you bastard, but they were, they were right. A couple of years later, he was re-elected after the whole Whitlam years and the dismissal in an election. And he said, well, do you think it was right to have a change? I said, yes, I do think it was right to have a change. So anyway, Martin, let's see what happens in about a week and a half's time. That's very interesting. It's a great story as well. It's very interesting. It makes me think that you know governments perhaps inherently have kind of a shelf life to them. You know, they they come in fresh with ideas, full of policy that they want to implement. But you know, after one or two terms, it starts to run a bit dry. Well, I think that's true. But you can also add into it the political parties and some of our colleagues. The same we talk about this: the values and the authenticity. And if a political party somehow comes across as not having authenticity and really either being not true to its values or being having no values, then I think it's going to lose time and space and acceptability with the ordinary voters. Have you seen a bit of that in the election campaign I in Australia? I think so. I think so. I think the, I think the current government really hasn't had time to stop, stop and think what it really does stand for in this modern age with all the challenges we face and the issues the country needs to move on. And you, we've listed many of them on the various podcasts we've had. But um, I think their tank's running on pretty empty. Well, there you go, listeners. You've heard what we thought of the discussion today. But what did you think about it? Why don't you get in contact with us? Let us know. We are really keen to get your thoughts, get your comments, whatever you want to say to us. Now, the best way to do that is to join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. Just jump onto Facebook, type Policy Forum Pod into your search bar, and there we are. We would love to see you there and love to continue the conversation that we've uh, started in this podcast today. Now, uh, I want to go over a couple of comments that we've received in relation to a couple of podcasts that we put out recently. We had um, one comment which was on the podcast, it's actually quite an old one now, it's called Putting Community Engagement in the Neighbourhood of Good Policy, and it was with Paul Schmitz. And in that episode, we had a chat to Paul, who was a former advisor to the Obama White House, about why community knowledge and participation is the key to good public policy. And we had a comment from Oloa Tongalava, who said, very late to this podcast, but enjoyed it truly. That's a nice comment, isn't it, Bob? A lovely comment, it really is. It's good to think. And of course, the issue of community engagement is so important. And it reminds me of the, I think, the really groundbreaking economic reform of the Labor government in the 1980s. I think that was an example of a lot of community engagement. I'm thinking there of the union movement, the business community, government, and other interested parties were essentially all at the table talking about the serious economic reform before it was actually passed. 
And we sort of talked on a little about this today, about the importance of stakeholder engagement, right? And communities are an important stakeholder. And how you've got to kind of keep them on side. You've got to let them know about what, what it is that you're planning, particularly if you want your policy communications to be successful. Well, as I think Pamela told us this afternoon, the My Health Record card process really is a good example of that, really having some quite major problems with it. And I think we're at a stage where it still is not yet resolved or working effectively. I may be a bit critical there, but I think that's my impression. Did you opt out of the My Health Record? No, I did not, but I have other members of my family who have. And there's been quite a fascinating debate. Okay, so many thanks for that comment, Aloha. That was uh, really nice to hear. The, the next comment is a, a brief one as well, and it's about the podcast that uh, Sharon Bessel did with Nyla Kabir. It was a terrific podcast. It was called The Gender Agenda. And uh, Sharon talked to Nyla about how gender impacts poverty and inequality, and they took a look at the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals and asked whether they are genuinely advancing women's empowerment. And we had a comment from Nakumicha on Twitter, who just said, amazing podcast. How does that make you feel, Bob, to know that you are involved with an amazing podcast? Well, it makes me feel very proud, actually, Martin, because I think uh, when I look back on the series of podcasts we've done in the past, some ones we have in mind for the future, we do turn over some interesting topics and try and challenge people's thinking. Yeah, so thank you so much for saying that at Nakamucha on Twitter. That's a lovely thing to hear. Uh, and a huge thanks to everyone who's commented and reminded to please keep sending them in. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter. We're, we are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook or drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. Now, the final thing, final bit of business for today really is I want to touch on a couple of suggestions that we've had for future pods. And remember, if you make a suggestion for a future pod, you could be a winner of one of our exclusive, very short run, like super short run, Bob is holding it up right now, Policy Forum Pod mug. Uh, So I would like to welcome the following members of our Facebook podcast group. It's great to have you on board and apologies in advance for my probably very poor pronunciation of some of your names. So hello to Odnu Dodgesuran, Ignacio Santos, Tai Son Niem, James Bayless, Liam Hughes, Laura McDowell, Jeremy Dalhu, Smiley Billings, I love that name, and Annalise Taylor. Welcome to the podcast, gang. It's great to have you on board. And a couple of those folks suggested ideas for future pods. So Ignacio, hello Ignacio, suggested that we discuss um, Get Up and Advance Australia and how these have changed, how politics happens in the country, um, and also how you go about fixing the election funding model. What do you make of that, Bob? Yeah, I think that last one's very important. It really is an unresolved business, that one. It's under some serious challenge. The current sort of contribution process and the way that's handled by special groups, companies and interest groups and so on is not as clear and as uh, open as we'd like it to be. For example, some of the donations we won't see until about another nine months on for this current election campaign. I think when you think about this, it fairly quickly takes you into the territory of, well, should we not have government funding for elections and really keep kind of private donations out of the whole thing? And I suspect that's an idea that its time is maybe coming, that the complexity of funding and the complexity of the modern technology may be the way to go here, but it's a tricky subject. 
It is indeed. So many thanks for that, Inesha. That is a terrific topic. Uh, the other suggestion was from Jeremy Dalhu. So hello, Jeremy, who suggested he would like to hear a pod with more detail surrounding the franking credit reform. Would you like to hear a pod with more details surrounding the franking credit reform, Bob? Oh, look, I've heard so much about franking credits, I'm not entirely sure what the hell it means or where I'm at with it. <laughs> but I've heard different views from my accountant, quite different from a financial advisor I've talked to, quite different, again, from my own views on the matter. So, yeah, I think a little bit of explanation of it would be, would be helpful. That I guess my final thought would be simply that Certainly, a government has the right to change its taxation and other arrangements. The question is, how do you actually do that? How do you, as it were, grandfather or process it through? That does sound like a good topic for us to tackle in the future. So many thanks again to Jeremy and Ian ACO for those. And we're really keen to get your thoughts on what topics you'd like to see us cover on the podcast. Just jump onto the Facebook group and let us know or reach out to us on Twitter. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. Only takes 30 seconds or so, just find that fifth star. It'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. That's it for this week, but we will be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Bob Cotton, thanks for being with us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.